Hi everyone. So, it's been a while. My dissertation project zigged and zagged, and a tool that I'd expected to work ended up completely failing. So I ended up having to make up for a fairly large amount of time, about two and a half months and counting actually. And maybe I'll talk about this a bit more in the future so any high schoolers and college students might know what to expect if they consider going into science. Anyways, one of the things I've been coping with is a bit more sleep deprivation than I'd like. Nothing unbearable, but somebody suggested a very relevant topic on Twitter a while ago at just the right time. So one of the things that can happen after sleep deprivation, way more severe sleep deprivation than what I'm experiencing, is a mental state called psychosis. And the term psychotic has been somewhat trivialized or like domesticated because as Louis C.K. suggested, we go right for the top shelf with our words now. And believe me, psychosis is a top shelf word to describe a very severe mental state. Okay, so let's get the nomenclature right. I've definitely heard of psychotic, psychotic breaks, psychosis, but are they the same thing as being a psychopath? No, they're pretty different actually. So when we say someone is going psycho, are we talking about someone in psychosis or a psychopath? Well, yeah, it's definitely one of those words that's been more widely used than it ought to be. So if someone says going psycho, I think they're probably referring to psychosis. But when somebody says that a person is a psycho, then maybe they're referring to psychopathy? Anyways, this obviously doesn't really track with the science. Okay, and how about uh, the similarities between uh, psychosis and schizophrenia? What's the difference between the two? Well, psychosis is really an umbrella term to describe a collection of conditions that revolve around severely altered judgment, emotional responses, and communication, as well as disordered thought processes and what's described as a detachment from reality. So schizophrenia is one disorder, the most frequent disorder, in fact, that includes symptoms of psychosis. But mood-related conditions like bipolar and depression, head trauma, and even certain parasites and viruses can also present with psychosis. Parasites? Ew. Yeah, I know, right? It, there are a bunch of infectious agents of the central nervous system that have odd effects on behavior. So like, for example, the rabies virus can induce hydrophobia or a fear of water. There's a pretty disturbing YouTube video of a gentleman in Hanoi, Vietnam, experiencing what appears to be the hydrophobia associated with rabies. It's pretty hard to watch and all just from a virus. Another one, which is really quite strange and has garnered a lot of attention recently, is Toxoplasma gondii which is a parasite that seems to have a very high ability to infect neurons specifically, what we call neurotropism. And it seems to have a predisposition to hippocampal and amygdalar neurons. This little bugger can cross a blood-brain barrier and colonize neurons where it wreaks havoc. It causes structural neuronal damage during invasion, growth, and exit of neurons, during which it has a wide variety of circuit ramifications. It elevates dopamine levels via its own enzymatic capabilities. It increases plasma levels of testosterone in infected male hosts. It causes an imbalance of pro- and anti-inflammatory signaling, which has very broad implications for distributed circuits, which could be a link towards possibly contributing to some of the cases of psychosis. One of the strangest effects is that it hypomethylates arginine vasopressin promoters in the amygdalae of rats, which results in hyperactivation of vasopressin neurons which seems to convert a fear response to cat odor into an attraction response in these rats. So this basically makes rats approach predators rather than try to evade them. So what does this parasite do in humans? I mean, do humans start running towards cars and bridges? <laughs> well, this is all pretty new stuff. And um, I don't, I'm not aware of any studies that really thoroughly explore this in humans. But in rodents, it has some pretty surprising effects. Okay, so how common is psychosis? 
Well, these numbers are always kind of difficult to estimate, but a study done in the past year using world health data suggested that among over 31,000 adults across 18 countries, the group estimated that about one in 13 people can expect to have at least one psychotic experience by the age of 75. That's, that's higher than I expected. Yeah, me too. But keep in mind that psychosis can occur in people suffering from other conditions like dementia, just not as frequently as other symptoms. So it can happen for a variety of reasons, not just conditions like schizophrenia. How often does it happen with PMS? <laughs> I don't know. I have to consult the literature <laughs> on that one. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what happens with someone who's experiencing psychosis. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do I know if I'm psychotic? Well, there's a difference between full-blown psychosis and the sort of earlier antecedent symptoms. And it's worth noting that there are disorders that can cause psychosis that take years to manifest. But there are also drugs or injuries that can induce psychosis either at high doses or during withdrawal. In fact, some of these drugs have been used to study psychosis and schizophrenia over the years, starting with stimulants, then dissociative anesthetics like ketamine, and hallucinogens like psychedelics. And those are two totally different avenues to the expression of psychosis. One takes years to develop, and one just takes a few hours. Anyways, there are about four broad categories of symptoms associated with psychosis. There's hallucinations, delusions like paranoia and grandiosity, disorganized thought, uh, speech, and behavior, and even catatonia. So catatonia, is that like being catatonic where someone basically isn't moving? Yeah, basically. It's a pretty severe condition that's associated with a variety of psychiatric conditions from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder to depression. And there's even a pretty wild iteration called waxy flexibility, where patients will basically hold body postures that they've been placed in, even pretty odd positions. There's some pretty wild YouTube videos that you can check out if you want to see it. But this symptom isn't of the variety that I think most people think of when referring to psychosis or being psychotic. Anyways, those four categories will interfere with a person's observable lifestyle in a variety of ways, from social detachment, hostility, and even sometimes aggression, both outward and towards the self. They might have disrupted speech patterns like hyperverbalization or just incoherent speech, sometimes called word salad. Okay, what about how they feel and what they see from the perspective of the person experiencing psychosis? What's going on? Right, so particularly the, like, the delusional and emotional and perceptual distortions make for a pretty profoundly altered state of consciousness. Okay, so I'm thinking of people who are claiming that they see things that aren't there or they're super paranoid, that people or aliens are out to get them, or maybe they're super into conspiracy theories. Right, those are definitely some like classical symptoms. Paranoia is perhaps one of the more insidious aspects of psychosis because it's literally your brain's alarm system telling you that your well-being is compromised. And it can be extremely difficult for someone to objectively criticize these thought processes. And do people know if they're experiencing psychosis? Sometimes people with more chronic conditions like schizophrenia who are aware of a diagnosis can be a bit more critical of these processes, particularly if they're medicated. But keep in mind, the same circuits that are responsible for taking in environmental information, deciphering sensory components like color, shape, sound, etc., as well as the social aspects of motivation, threat, familiarity, are all the same circuitry that are altered in psychosis. In other words, it's not like one part of your brain is lying to the other parts. It's the, your very construction of reality that's altered. You are behaving in a rational way to this onslaught of danger. Like, you perceive that danger to be coming, and you're just behaving as you would should any danger be coming. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely part of it. Okay. 
So I can imagine that's pretty scary. Definitely. And elevated levels of fear and anxiety are definitely components of psychosis. In fact, people who experience psychosis even have more frequent nightmares with more hostile events, a higher proportion of strangers, and a lower frequency of dreams where the dreamer is the main character. But that apparent deficit of cognitive evaluation or criticism of thought processes or interpretations has some interesting consequences for things that I hadn't considered before doing some reading. So I want the listeners to think of a period of each 24 hours where they encounter a brain state that might be somewhat comparable to psychosis. Well, something we all do, or ought to do, is sleep. And we have spontaneous brain activity while we're sleeping that contributes to dreams. Dreams and psychosis share certain features. For example, there's intrinsic sensory perceptions that can be entirely independent of external stimulation. In other words, you can have visual experiences without having your eyes open while dreaming. Well, in psychosis, the same kind of thing can happen. There's also a general lack of perceptual and cognitive criticism while sleeping. We rarely question what we experience while dreaming, it just kind of happens to us. And this is actually associated with reduced frontal lobe activity while we're sleeping. When we are able to criticize the dream process, then there actually is increased activity in the prefrontal cortex compared to regular dreaming. And we call that lucid dreaming. Well, when someone is in psychosis, they're just less able to critically evaluate if their thought patterns, beliefs, anxieties, and paranoia are accurately derived from external information as well. And this corresponds with altered signaling in the prefrontal cortical structures in people who experience psychosis. And we'll go into the circuit disruptions that occur during psychosis a little bit later, but before we leave dreams, a group in Brazil wanted to see if perhaps people who experience psychosis might have altered lucid dream frequency than those who don't. What do you think? Do you think people who experience psychosis would have more or less frequent lucid dreams? Less frequent. Why? Well, because they're less able to discern um, what they're seeing. or less able to kind of put that into context. With Yeah, I expected the same thing. While one might expect that because lucid dreams appear to depend upon increased prefrontal cortical activity during REM sleep, and people who experience psychosis tend to have reduced function in the same structures in general, it turned out that they found people with psychosis tended to have higher frequency of lucid dreams. So there's something a bit more complex going on here regarding cognition during psychosis. It's not so simple as just reduced prefrontal cortical activity. Okay, so let's get into the more complex things that are going on behind psychosis. Well, first of all, can you inherit psychosis? I know I'm already sounding like a broken record and we're like only five episodes in, but this turns out to be a pretty complex process. In short, yes, there's a significant genetic component to psychosis. For example, uh, schizophrenia is highly heritable, like around 70%. But when we're talking about psychosis, it's more accurately described as a susceptibility or predisposition to experiencing psychosis rather than like an inevitability. The environment and experience play a huge role in causing psychosis. It's quite likely that there's a spectrum of susceptibility here. Like, uh, let's create a, like a hypothetical situation to talk about what we refer to as the gene-environment interaction. Think of two people who've had this exact same life experiences in the exact same environments. One of them has a 25% susceptibility to experiencing psychosis, while the other only has a 5% susceptibility. Now, imagine something severely traumatizing or stressful occurs to both of them. Well, the person who inherited a 25% susceptibility is much more likely to respond to the stressful event with psychosis than the other. Right, gotcha. So the same experience can cause psychosis in some people and not in others, and that likelihood has to do with genetics. That's right, and there's an additional role played by the environment. 
Now imagine two people with 25% susceptibilities to experiencing psychosis, and one of them experiences a string of six highly stressful events, while the other only experiences one or two. Well, the person with numerous stressful events is considerably more likely to experience psychosis than the one who didn't. So, like with most things, there's an interaction between the genes and the environment that determines the ultimate likelihood of developing psychosis. That's right, though the relationship between genes and environment runs a bit deeper than one might think. Stressful life events are essentially known to precipitate psychotic experiences in people who are vulnerable. And we can chat about from what exactly that vulnerability arises in the brain, but there are different kinds of stressful life events, dependent life events and independent. Dependent life events rely on a person's own behavior, like a difficult breakup. Independent life events are those that have nothing to do with a person's own behavior, like the death of a loved one. Well, it turns out there's a heritable component to the likelihood of stressful life events that emerges from gene-environment interactions. Believe it or not, dependent stressful life events have a heritability between 28 and 31%, according to one research group. So whether it's a learned behavior or an inherited predisposition to a behavior, certain stressful life events that a person causes uh, or brings about through their own doings are transmitted from them to their children. That's right, and there are basically three different types of gene-environment interactions. There's active, where the same genetic propensity that leads people to seek out situations that result in dependent stressful life experiences is the same genetic influence that increases the risk of psychotic experiences. There's evocative, where dependent stressful life experiences, which are only partly genetically influenced, result in environments or incite behaviors that result in elevated levels of things like paranoia. And then there's passive, where genetic factors increase the likelihood of dependent stressful life events on the part of the parents, and these are shared with adolescents through the environment in which they're raised. So basically, these three categories describe different ratios of genetic influence and environmental influence. So let's get a little bit more concrete. A study of a group of adolescents, which is an important time during development to the susceptibility of psychotic experiences, found that the stressful life events most highly associated with psychotic experiences like paranoia, hallucinations, cognitive disorganization, and grandiosity were becoming involved with drugs, being suspended from school or college, and being responsible for a road accident. Keep in mind, though, that it's absolutely not the case that most adolescents who experience these events will develop psychosis. It just appears to be that certain individuals have the genetic susceptibility to responding to these life events with psychosis. Okay, so that makes sense. So what about people who, for one reason or another, have frequent stressful life experiences? Are they at a greater risk of experiencing psychosis? Yeah, that's a great point. So there seems to be a pretty strong correlation here. There's actually a fourfold increased risk of psychotic experiences among adults who have had two stressful life experiences and a sixfold increased risk among adults who have had six or more stressful life experiences. And young adolescents who have had over three stressful life experiences are also much more likely to experience psychosis. And the more of them that a teenager has, the greater the risk of persistent auditory hallucinations. And this actually isn't all that surprising. Adolescence is a time when stress reactivity is particularly high, and stress response systems of like the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis are still maturing. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on in the brain when someone experiences psychosis. In people who inherited a predisposition to having these experiences, What's different about their brain? Well, there are a variety of subtle differences during development that have been noticed. 
So first, let's talk about how the brain grows and matures. It's reached about 25% of its maximum size at birth, 75% by the age two, and then 90% by the age of five. It's typically at about full size at around the age of 12 in girls and 15 in boys, and of course this varies uh, a fair bit. But it's important to keep in mind that maturation isn't the same thing as increasing size. There are anatomical changes that occur during childhood and adolescence, things like increasing white matter volume. And then when it comes to cortical and cerebellar gray matter volume, there are increases and decreases in different regions. And the prefrontal cortex is among the last brain regions to fully mature. So basically different areas of the brain grow at different rates. Uh, do we know what parts of the brain these are? Yeah, so the reason white matter increases is due to increased myelination of the circuitry devoted to sensory, motor, and like bare bones consciousness circuitry that develop pretty early in childhood, while circuitry devoted to the importance or relevance of environmental stimuli and executive functions like decision making and future planning come on board later into adolescence. I imagine those structures that develop later are pretty important here. That's right, and we start to get to particularly important brain regions when we consider growth dynamics of gray matter. Sensory, motor, and older limbic areas are among the earliest to achieve full maturity. Limbic areas are areas that regulate things like emotion, motivation, and memory. But similar to white matter patterns, there's a developmental mismatch between motivational and emotional circuitry and frontal lobe executive circuitry that helps us to make more prudent decisions and more effectively weigh costs and benefits and threats. And so this partly describes the sort of typical risky adolescent behaviors, which we usually grow out of, but a wrong turn here or there in the development and fine tuning of the relationship between frontal and mid and hindbrain structures is what results in predispositions to various psychiatric conditions, psychosis being one of them. So picture two boats parallel to each other in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of China, and they're moving forward in the same direction towards California. Now, imagine one of them turns the steering wheel just one inch to the side away from the other boat. Imagine how far apart they'd be by the time they both hit land. Just one inch would turn into many, many miles of distance between them. There's a similar kind of thing going on in brain development. A subtle difference in the balance between these brain regions can result in substantial differences in behavioral predispositions and psychiatric susceptibilities. More specifically, a group used a technique called diffusion tensor imaging, or DTI, which can give us pictures of what parts of the brain are connected to what other parts of the brain by showing us where white matter tracks are going. Well, it turned out that there were significantly lower densities of connections in the inferior longitudinal fasciculus and superior longitudinal fasciculus in all patients compared to volunteers who had never had psychosis. And so the inferior longitudinal fasciculus connects the temporal and occipital lobes, which is at least in part responsible for integrating visual signals to behaviorally relevant temporal structures like the amygdala. The superior longitudinal fasciculus is pretty complicated, but participates in everything from motor behavior, memory, perception of visual space, language articulation, and auditory processes. So clearly there are broad differences in connectivity in people who are susceptible to psychosis. Okay, so can we get a bit more granular? I know how you like to talk about circuits. <laughs> yes, we can. One of the most important things that occurs during adolescence is the growth of social components of the brain. We form relationships and we learn to navigate complex group situations. The general areas of the brain that communicate with midbrain structures are areas like the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, the temporoparietal junction, the posterior superior temporal sulcus, and anterior temporal cortex. As we age, there's reduced cortical thickness in the first three structures and increased thickness in the anterior temporal cortex. 
This suggests that circuitry in the brain that helps us to decipher the mental states of other people, which is crucial to social interaction, mature during late childhood all the way until early adulthood, which is when we tend to see psychotic experiences occur. And what about neurotransmitter systems? Are there changes in levels of neurotransmitters? Right. So for a long time, the field thought that psychosis emerged from too much or too little dopamine in certain areas of the brain, which is still considered to be a part of what's going on. But glutamate and GABA transmission have also now been implicated. Keep in mind that just increasing dopamine in the brain doesn't have one consequence. Increasing dopamine transmission in one area of the brain can increase motivation and attention, while increasing it in another can induce paranoia and aggression, which is what happens when people take high doses of amphetamine and cocaine. This is why the prevailing theory of schizophrenia for a long time was the dopamine hypothesis. And it is still part of the theory, and for good reasons. Monoamine signaling, which includes dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, arises from basically down in the brainstem and interacts with the prefrontal cortex. Dopamine is released onto neurons in the prefrontal cortex, and this is critical for normal cognitive function. It influences both excitatory and inhibitory processes in the prefrontal cortex. In fact, certain dopamine receptors are actually at their highest levels of expression in the prefrontal cortex during adolescence and young adulthood, and then begin to reduce later on into adulthood. So adolescence is this sensitive period when the developmental trajectories of dopamine signaling can lead to pretty different outcomes. Okay, so what's going on with glutamate and GABA? Well, it's really more of an issue of how many synaptic connections there are between neurons that synthesize glutamate and GABA. In other words, how well connected excitatory and inhibitory neurons are with the rest of the brain. As we grow, there's an increase in the number of excitatory synapses in the prefrontal cortex until just after birth. This then plateaus and is maintained until late childhood, and then decreases during adolescence until it reaches adult levels. Synaptic pruning. That's right. And similar changes occur with certain types of inhibitory GABA-releasing neurons called chandelier and basket cells. Chandelier and basket cells. I assume they're called that because they look like chandeliers and baskets? Yep. Unlike some other disciplines, modern neuroscientists tend to just call it like they see it. <laughs> okay, so I think I can see where you're going with excitation and inhibition. Too much in one place and too little another, and you don't get the proper participation of one or more components of a circuit. That's right. And I don't think we can finish talking about this subject without talking about drugs. I've seen a lot of articles recently suggesting that pot can cause psychosis or schizophrenia, and a bunch arguing the opposite as well. Is there a clear answer here? Well, I think at this point throughout the podcast, we've made it pretty clear that there are fairly significant differences in the way people's brains interact with the environment. And part of the environment is drug exposure. One person can inherit a predisposition to absolutely loving opiates like heroin or morphine, or, or loving nicotine and cigarettes, while another finds them severely unpleasant. Well, when it comes to cannabis, there appears to be some specific genetic vulnerabilities to responding with psychosis. Do we know of the particular genes? Yes. There's one in particular that's gotten some significant attention recently. There's an enzyme called catechol O-methyltransferase, or COMPT, that's responsible for the breakdown of dopamine, particularly in the prefrontal cortex. Well, the gene for this enzyme has been characterized as a risk factor for schizophrenia for years now, and there are multiple versions of this gene that people can inherit, and the different versions will result in slightly different versions of the enzyme. One version results in 40% more activity from this enzyme, which then results in significantly lower levels of dopamine in the prefrontal cortex than the other form of this gene. 
Well, a group in the Netherlands found that people who inherited the hyperactive form of the enzyme responded with greater frequency of the positive symptoms of psychosis, like sensory hallucinations and disrupted thought content, than those with the other form of the gene. Okay, so if you inherit a certain form of this gene, or I imagine some others as well, then you might be more likely to experience psychosis after smoking weed. Yeah, that's basically true. Although a group at the University of Texas Harvard, Yale, and some other institutions found a pretty surprising effect of regular use of cannabis in people with schizophrenia. It turned out that adults with schizophrenia who had a history of smoking cannabis during adolescence actually performed better on specific cognitive tasks than adults who had no history of smoking cannabis at all. Specifically, it was executive function, working memory, and verbal memory that seemed to be improved among adults with schizophrenia relative to adults with schizophrenia that had never smoked it in the first place. The group isn't sure if this is actually an effect of the drug over the long term, or if use of the drug sort of selects for a subpopulation of high-functioning people with schizophrenia. Right. So, for example, if you are debilitated with severe schizophrenia, it might be difficult for you to figure out a way to get an illegal drug. Yeah, it's tough to tease that apart. But there does seem to be a window of vulnerability when it comes to adolescent cannabis use. So like repeated use of cannabis before the age of around 16 might increase the risk of developing a condition associated with psychosis. And this makes sense. There is a developmental period when the number of one of the receptors that the active agents in cannabis bind increases on the axons of GABA-releasing neurons in the prefrontal cortex. When these receptors are activated, GABA release is suppressed from these synaptic bodies which will then alter the balance of excitation and inhibition in the prefrontal cortex. And so this might be part of the reason that regular use of cannabis during this developmental period might be uniquely problematic. Okay, so let's move on to prevention. Do we have the ability to prevent psychosis from occurring in people who are susceptible? Well, a lot of recent strides have been made in improving our ability to predict if someone might be vulnerable to psychosis, or if they might convert from an acute psychotic event to a condition like schizophrenia. A network of people at King's College in London, in the Netherlands, in Munich, Germany, and at Yale in the U.S. have devised a system earlier this year that uses machine learning coupled with a broad data set from MRIs to predict if someone was at risk of transitioning into a psychotic disorder with up to 88% accuracy, which is like leaps and bounds above the capability of any single physician or even group of physicians. And they're saying that once they integrate other types of data like fMRI or DTI, genetic, Uh, and psychological profiles, this accuracy can be improved even further. That's so cool. Using computers to help us recognize opportunities to prevent suffering. Yeah, I know, right? It is pretty cool. And this kind of strategy is being applied to other conditions, like autism, for example. So maybe another time we can talk about possible treatments. But I imagine it's probably a pretty big challenge, given how complicated the picture is here. Like if the balance of expectation and inhibition is off a bit in certain areas of the brain, then you might be more susceptible to something like psychosis. And tweaking that to be healthy again seems like it would be super hard. That's right. There's a very fine balance of excitatory and inhibitory signaling in various parts of the brain that enable us to integrate sensory information, past memories, emotion, uh, social intelligence, and goals in a functional manner. And that balance can be disturbed by a variety of factors. And trying to correct that balance using drugs or trying to prevent the balance from ever being compromised in the first place is definitely a huge challenge. When you're experiencing psychosis, you're experiencing the byproduct of imbalanced communication between frontal structures 
and midbrain and hindbrain structures, and this results in disrupted integration of all of these signals. As a result, sensory information isn't integrated properly, and you get auditory, visual, and even tactile hallucinations. Social information isn't properly interpreted, and so you begin to experience inappropriate levels of fear and anxiety and paranoia. Speech signaling isn't integrated into broader circuitry, and so you get disrupted abilities to speak, resulting in word salad. When it's particularly severe, even motor signals aren't properly balanced and integrated into the system, and so you get something like catatonia. But despite the big challenge here, as we learn more and more about the relationships between genetics and the environment at the level of the brain, we're going to find opportunities for us to therapeutically intervene and help people avoid the consequences of these interactions that are completely out of their control. So Ian, Bo, <laughs> do you know what my grad school acapella group was called? <laughs> Let me go check my notes. <laughs> what was it called? We were called the catatonics. Cute. Because grad school can give you psychosis. <laughs> That's pretty true. <laughs>